1: welcome to another episode of the future socks podcast my name is mike rankin i'll be your host james fox senior writer at future socks also alongside us today our guest kevin goldstein boy does he have a journey in the baseball world started at baseball perspectives eventually graduated to the houston astros making it all the way to the special assistant role to the general manager in houston also scouting coordinator in houston over his time now he's back at fan and if you're familiar with the name fan graphs you may have checked out Kevin's recent article on Nick magical big part of the reason why we wanted to talk to him today on the future sox podcast and we'll get into a lot as well as Michael Kopack the minor league baseball season starting up here in about a week or so but first Kevin introducing you here to our fan base really appreciate you taking the time for me as a person who's always wanted to work for a professional organization in Major League Baseball I sort of followed a little bit in your shoes in terms of your pathway. I started as an independent blogger and then sort of graduated into the professional realm, still haven't been in, in a major league organization, but I feel like your journey can resonate with a lot of baseball aficionados, if I may. Uh, so if, if you wouldn't mind just talking us through what it was like working for baseball prospectus, getting to the Astros and now coming back to FanGraphs, how's how has that perspective changed for you?
2: Um, I mean, obviously, it's changed a lot. You know, I was I was worked for the Houston Astros for eight years. And I, I think I definitely um, think about baseball, see baseball and evaluate players very differently than I did at the end of my of media stint number one, as I guess we can call it. Um So a lot changed, really. And, and a lot of that has changed as, as the game has changed. Obviously, I think everybody sees baseball players and Thinks about baseball and evaluates talent differently than they did eight years ago. Much of that is because of the the access we have to some of the data and the video that we didn't have back then. Um, and and so it's 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 been a really a remarkable change. And it, it's funny for you to call it a journey. It makes me feel like I'm on Survivor or something. And and maybe I am. But it's 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 definitely changed a lot. And and it's 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 interesting to get back eight years later after kind of being in the shadows and see. How the public sphere, if you will, has changed in a lot of ways, and how even things like Twitter has changed significantly. From we used to have a lot of fun on Twitter after eight years, and now it's a very angry place, and um, you know, and 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 just you know figuring out the whole thing. And 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 I think the audience for baseball information has changed a lot as well. And you know, the the, the Nick Madrigal piece I wrote this week. Uh, would have been seen as kind of of niche if you will. Um, But at this point, a large percent of the audience can understand some of the concepts you're talking about, and I think that's a real good thing.
1: Yeah, and that's what I really wanted to follow up on here, Kevin, is the idea of what is being implemented from the major league scene, right? In the front offices, what are are the types of data they're looking at and trying to uh, apply it to players to understand how they can take their most efficient player or their skill set and make them even better? How does that translate to what you're describing in the Nick Madrigal piece in Fangraphs?
2: I mean, the Madrigal piece was actually in in some ways kind of simple. It was looking at Nick Madrigal and and thinking about how wonderful he is. He's so much fun to watch. He's such a, he's a unicorn. Like there's nothing else like him in the major leagues right now. Um, And obviously, I, I think all three of us can agree, Nick Madrigal is very good at baseball. And then, you know, then flip that a little bit It's like, but how valuable is what he does. And that's what I wanted to get into and think about how valuable what he does is. And, and you know, what are the limitations to his value because of what he is, which is a completely powerless player. Um, you know, he's hitting, you know, going into tonight's game, you know, he's hitting 327 and he's slugging 387. And, and that limits the value of the 327. No one's saying Nick Madrigal is not good. I've, I've heard from plenty of White Sox fans who really like the piece. And I've also heard from a small contingent who think I'm somehow crapping on Nick Madrigal. And I'm not. Um, but it was like seeing, trying to figure out what these, this, very strange player with insane contact skills and a high batting average who really doesn't do anything around that batting average in terms of power or drawing walks and things like that, like what it would actually take for him to go from good to great. And again, very good player right now, but can he be great and and are the challenges for him becoming great different or greater than it would be for some other players who have a more standard player profile?
3: Yeah, and that you know, that's one of the reasons why I thought it was, you know, it was so good. It's just cause, you know, you point out the hit tool, which everybody knows, and you know, you kind of said, I think, if this isn't 20 power, then what what is 20 power? I kinda chuckled at that, just because he's he's been so polarizing. You know, we've talked about him since he's been drafted. And there's, you know, people like uh your colleague Eric Longenhagen have been huge fans of Nick Madrigal all the way through. There's also detractors. My question for you, you know, you were in the front office of Houston when he was drafted. Do you think he kind of is what he was sold as? Because I was honestly, I was expect and it's a small sample, but I was expecting much better defense. I thought he was a little bit faster than the first time that I saw him. You know, I think the the hit tool is what it is and questioning how valuable you know, he's going to be with a, you know, as a high average guy with no power can be, I was just, you know, I don't know if I was like oversold a little bit on the defensive ability.
2: You know, to be honest with you, like in the draft room, we saw him as, um, as what you've seen as just an incredible bat control player, you know, a 70 or better hit tool. Uh, You don't like to throw 80 around ever unless it's, it's, you know, insane if it's Tony Gwynn or something. Um, But a 70 plus bat and a guy who was probably going to have to move off a shortstop. But you know, coming to the draft, the thought was this guy would be a plus second baseman, and that still might be in him. You know, I, I know there's been some defensive scuffle so far. I I don't necessarily buy the fact that he's just some sort of, you know, below average fender. I think he'll be a fine second baseman in the end, and and maybe even plus. Um, the run tool maybe a little light. I'll, I'll, you know, I did see him in college, but i you know my first real kind of close up look at him was just I kind of ran into him is right after he got drafted. I went and saw our high A affiliate that year. Um, you know, I did affiliate visits for the team every year and they happened to be playing Winston Salem. And and so there was Nick Madrigal. And I just remember watching him and, and being fascinated by him and just saying, he hits nothing hard. He hits everything and he hits nothing hard. And it stuck with me. And I've been thinking about the guy ever since, uh, you know, and, and I would honestly say like, you know, that visit to a minor league affiliate now years ago is what, you know, was was kind of the the birthplace of this piece.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, calling him a unicorn obviously is, is true. I mean, I, I don't think we've ever seen, you know, anything quite like, you know, just like what he is, but you know, I, like I said, it's why I love the piece as much as I did, you know, just because there are obvious questions and we get the same thing, you know, from the people that love Nick Madrigal because he obviously is very cute and cuddly and he's a lot of people's (laughs) favorite, favorite baseball player, but it's like, yeah. Like how valuable is this guy, ultimately so that was one of the reasons you know why i just like the piece so much but you know moving on briefly here to a different first round pick of recent vintage andrew vaughn you know is in the majors already after not really playing above high a he's also transitioning to left field after playing first base for most of his career what are your thoughts on him being in the majors and just i guess how he's like uh acclimated so far
2: uh, I mean, obviously, you know, we've all seen it. It's been, a, it's been a little bit of a scuffle for him. I, I think the good news is, I think, is the approach is still there. It's still a very good approach, and and, and he's not pressing, and he's not leaving his hitting zone, which I think is something you see a lot in young players and rookies where they get, you know, they start to press when they struggle. And 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 Andrew Bond's not a guy used to struggling. This guy you know, put up massive numbers in college and, you know, it's hit everywhere he's gone and he's kind of having his first scuffles. But the good news is it hasn't altered his approach. And uh, I just wish he was playing every day. I just, I, I think if you're going to do this, if you have a guy who's an elite prospect, and you want him in the big leagues, that's fine. But if you want him in the big leagues, you have to play him in the big leagues. And I I think this kind of on-again, off-again thing isn't serving him well either, either. Uh, But I I think he'll be fine in the end. I'm not overly concerned with with what we've seen so far. Um, I I know the numbers aren't anything outstanding, uh, but some of the underlying stuff looks fine. Looks like Andrew Vaughn.
3: Do you, do you think left field is fine if they run into a situation where like Eloy has to get the glove taken away permanently? Because that's like part of the issue here. And obviously nobody's ever had too many good players, but it's one one of their issues with all the slugger types that they have.
2: Absolutely. I mean, you're right. There's nothing, no such thing as too many good players. You can, you can figure it out. I don't think he'll be a good left fielder. I don't think he'll be an average left fielder. Um, Can he stand there? Probably. Um, but I, I, he's out of position no matter what, you know, he'll always be kind of below average there. Um, I, I do wonder, obviously, you know, we saw what happened today with, with Luis Robert going on the, on the DL and, and that's unfortunate, but hopefully that gives you know Vaughn a chance to play every day and and, and maybe see if he can get things going with the bat. Uh, ultimately, you know, I, you guys know this, you guys watch every Sox game. Evo Jimenez is a horrendous outfielder um he's not paid to do that he's paid to hit balls over the fence not field balls not going over the fence um and and it's a future dh and it's going to open up an outfield position um but but you know andrew vaughn's natural position is first base that's kind of taken right now
1: is something i was thinking about there when you were talking about nick magical's hit tool as well as the implementation of andrew vaughn is sort of an interesting situation where the white Sox stand right now because all indications suggested that This offseason, the White Sox were very confident in their depth, and that included Andrew Vaughn. Whether or not the Eloy Jimenez injury happens or not, I think Andrew Vaughn was a part of the plan in 2021 in some significant role, despite not having any professional experience past advanced A, and we have the variable of 2020 coming into play, and that also kind of you know, takes into account of Nick Madrigal, his lack of experience in the big leagues, as well as Michael Kopech, the, the struggles that he went through, and then the avenues the White Sox took in order to build a roster they felt like is World Series contender. It's mixed with guys who are established and consistent, and then there are there are some guys in there like rookies, a lack of experience. Luis Robert is still feeling his way through the big leagues, although he does sell me as a big leaguer already, despite the lack of experience. How do you feel the White Sox stand right now with minor league baseball coming up? It's a nice little added uh, bonus of depth and evaluation tool for them, but how they stand on their forty-man roster in terms of overall competitiveness, and if you believe that the youngsters involved kind of make it tough, I should say, on the front office to really evaluate what this team actually is.
2: You know, if 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 I had to, you know, here we are. It's 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 April twenty seventh. It's whatever. It's five sixteen in the afternoon. If you asked me to to make a bet on who's going to win the American League Central right now, I'd take the White Sox. Um, the depth thing is a potential issue for sure. You know, when you think about their top prospect list, um, you know, whoever's on that prospect list entering the year, uh, as far as guys at the top, are in the big leagues right now. You know, Vaughn, Kopek, Garrett Crochet. Um, you know, the rest of their you know, top 10, top 20 list are not guys who you are expecting much help from in 2021. You know, the, the kids are here, if you will. Um, you know, their, their higher ceiling prospects from there are not guys who are ready. You're talking about, you know, Jared Kelly, who I adore and, and was maybe the steal of the draft last year. Um, you're talking about, you know, a guy like Cespedes, who's 23 but has never played. Uh, you know, you're talking about, you know, the big Cuban arm and Norge Vera. Um, but you're not talking about players who you expected to contribute in 2021. So, you know, the depth is is kind of here, if that makes sense. You know, this is this is the team that has to stay healthy and has to and has to make this team a winner because there's you know, what's coming is already there.
1: Do you believe there is value in moving a guy like a Garrett Crochet or Andrew Vaughn down to Triple A Charlotte to I don't know, refine a specific tool? I think Garrett Crochet is a little different because if they do that, really it's more of a A notion that they want him to start and you know it takes time to obviously build up that sort of skill set but with Andrew Vaughn is there any benefit of moving him away from the big league lineup I mean obviously he's not playing enough but I just feel like it would be counterproductive if, if they moved him down a level even if it does mean he's getting at bats every day
2: I, I disagree. I, I think if he's up, he should play every day. And if he's not, he should be down somewhere else playing every day. He should be playing every day. You can decide where it's going to be, but I think the priorities have him playing every day. He's not a finished product. He's a guy who needs rep. He's a guy who needs more exposure to professional level pitching. Um, I'm fine with him getting that at the big league level, but if that's the decision, he actually has to get that at the big league level. And so, you know, that's the, the thing with him. As far as Crochet goes, I scuffle to see him as a future starter. Uh, so if you just want to have him, you know, coming out of the bullpen and, and just kind of throwing gas for an inning in the big leagues, I think it's fine. I, I, you know, if you want him to start, you do have to send him down, but I don't know why you'd want him to have him, to have him start right now. I know a starter is more valuable than a reliever. We all know that, but that doesn't mean any, every good reliever can become a starter. Uh, you know, obviously he started in college, but this, this, it, the whole package is, a, is very much a reliever feel. Obviously it's huge stuff, but in terms of kind of command and control and pitch efficiency, as well as the delivery, to be honest with you. It's, it's it's more of a reliever package overall. And there's a bit of a, you know, it's not broke, don't fix it kind of feel here. Dude's doing well out of the bullpen. It feels like a reliever. You know, why get cute?
3: Yeah, so the, you know, the Andrew Vaughn thing has obviously been a topic, you know, for White Sox fans throughout. I think I'm, I'm, with you and we've debated it on the podcast, like if that dude is in the big leagues, like he's got to play every day. And my guess is Rick Hahn and Ken Williams feel the same way. And they're kind of feeling this thing out with 76 year old hall of fame manager that kind of just, you know, fills out the lineup card every day. But you know, somebody that is in the lineup every day, your mean Mercedes, you know, the start has been (laughs) kind of insane. And we, you know, we do our top 30 prospect rankings here at future socks and see guys live, but we, you know, we've never really ranked him because you know, 27 year old, probably DH and he burst onto the scene and he's doing what he's doing and and it's crazy. So how crazy is it? How surprised are you by the, you know, just the start from your main Mercedes that he's had in the big league so far?
2: Yeah. It's pretty damn crazy, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I'm with you. It's crazy. Yeah. I don't think anyone sat there and goes, you know what? Uh, you know, Three weeks into the season, he'll probably have an 1100 plus OPS, right? Yeah, you would have laughed. And and he just kind of keeps hitting. And uh, you, you got to give him credit. And, and he's, you know, he, like you say, he hit. He was always an older guy who hit. Um, I, I thought he maybe had big league value as a bench bat. And I'm not convinced this is real. And he's suddenly some sort of star, but you know, ride it out and enjoy it for now. I, you know, it, it's, it's, he's obviously has some sort of major league value. I don't think it's this much value, but he's not. This is not a complete fluke. I think it's just kind of a partial fluke.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, you obviously mentioned Nick Madrigal being a unicorn, and I, I don't think this is the same thing, but I guess how sustainable is it and how different is he that he does like completely change his approach? Like, all, like he comes up there and he just tries to hit bombs. And then with two strikes, he totally changes, you know, and just like kind of like tries to single the right field or whatever. And it's just like something that a lot of guys don't do very often.
2: Right, and if you look at it like it's not like anything's out of control here, and you, you talked about him swinging for the fences at the same time, you know, because of that two-strike approach, his strikeout rates perfectly acceptable. It's it's nothing high or anything like that. at all, yeah, that, that's the kind of the I don't know maybe the scary thing about all this is it kind of all, in a way, makes some sense. You know, his his batting average in balls in play is is very very high right now, and and it's it's, it's the reason why he's hitting. You know, four thirty or whatever it is right now, and and he's really not that hitter, and he hasn't performed like that hitter. He's had some some batted ball luck, but at the same time, he's also hitting the crap out of the ball. Um, I, I think there's a real big league bat in here, and kind of its ultimate value is still very much to be determined.
1: You talked about Jared Kelly a little bit. I want to bring you back there, and you said he was the steal of the draft. What about him makes you so excited? that he can translate to a big league regular as a starting pitcher?
2: Uh, you know, some of this might be, uh, you know, to use the scouting term, a bit of bias on view. Uh, the first time I saw Jared Kelly uh, was in the late summer of, of 2019 uh, when he pitched at the Under Armour game at Wrigley Field. I know you two guys would probably avoid that place, but I had to go there and do some scouting. And um, he threw an inning and, and he struck out the side. And It was, you know, and this was against, the 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 top high school talent in the country and he was up to ninety seven with a, a good breaking ball, a real changeup, which you don't really see in, in a lot of high school power arms. It was obviously you guys know this. It's, it's, it sounds like a cliche, but it matters. It's what they look like, you know, in terms of just frame and delivery. And I was like, this guy's one of the best high school arms in the country. He's gotta be. And and I know he had a couple scuffles that, you know, in the spring and and also threw out a big, you know, uh, a big demand money wise. And the White Sox were able to draft smartly and, and still get him at 47. And, and you know, I thought this guy was a top half of the first round talent to be able to get him where they got him. It just felt like highway robbery. I, you know, this guy's, I think he's far away. It's going to take a lot of time. You got to remember this is, a, this is a high school kid. This guy, you know, just getting his, his pro career started. He's still a teenager. Um, and and I, I think it's unrealistic to expect him, you know, this year next or the one after that. Uh, But it's a, it's the whole package is there. I don't really see a a weakness in his game. You'd like maybe a little refinement to the breaking ball, but the ability that to, to be showing up there with, with three power pitches is a real, very, very real one. I like him a lot.
3: You know, as somebody that worked in a front office, I, I guess I would say, does, you know, Kevin Goldstein, the media personality, does, does your opinion on taking a high school pitcher, is that different than Kevin Goldstein, like working in a front office, taking a high school pitcher, like early in a baseball draft?
2: Not at all. No, 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 no. I, I, I haven't changed anything about the way I feel. And I, I, you know, I always used to tell I I felt forced at times to tell you know other people I was working with when I was in a front office that, um, you know, the last thing anybody needs, you know, be it the, the GM and AGM, a, a director of amateur scouting is is a yes man. You know, I was getting paid and paid pretty damn well to give my opinion. So I, I better damn well give it even if it goes against the grain. And so, no, I, I, I would be happy to tell things you know, exactly as I saw them. I don't have a problem taking a high school pitcher. I mean, obviously the Houston Astros took Brady Aiken with the first pick in the draft. I, obviously that didn't work out for a variety of reasons. Uh, but I, I don't believe in any sort of ever like absolutes. Like you don't take high school pitching high with the first round. Well, what if he's special? Then you do take him. And, you know, I don't believe in, in you know, anyone's in, an absolute no trade. You know, I, I I think all of those kind of concepts are, are silly. There's no absolutes in this game. If a guy's special enough, you take him.
3: Yeah. And you guys took Forrest Whitley too. So that that was pretty early. That's 15. So, mm-hmm. um, so speaking of, you know, I guess guys that were drafted out of high school, Michael Kolpak has been really good so far um, for the White Sox. I guess ultimately the role is, is starting pitcher. I would assume, I think, you know, the, the issue this year, nobody really knows what the innings number is, right? Is it a hundred that he can get to? Is it 120? I don't think anybody really knows. Can the Sox use him effectively? you know, this year kind of with what they're doing and avoiding a Steven Strasburg situation while also making him a full-time starter maybe as early as 2022?
2: I think so, you know, and I, I think the, the way they, they've they they've handled it so far uh, has been pretty impressive as far as the mix of some of, of bullpen action as well as some kind of shorter starts to give him extended stuff. You know, he's, uh, you know, if you think about where he is right now, he's probably on pace for somewhere in the in the 120 inning range. And, and I think that's feels about right. And you're right. You know, we don't know what is in here. The White Sox certainly know, I'm sure they, they have an exact number they're looking at. And, and at the same time, they'll, they'll monitor his, his workload and his health at the same time. Um, but I, I do think it's, it's, he'll ultimately end up a starter. I think what they're doing this year is, is really smart. Um, you know, do they necessarily need a starter right now? No. You know, uh, you know, once Lynn comes back from the DL, they have, they have a full rotation. And so there's there's no need to force anything here. and I think just kind of getting a, a healthy season out of Copic and in kind of an underrated role is, you know, it's kind of, you know, I don't know how old you guys are, but it kind of feels like almost like a, you know, a generation ago swing man. You know, we used to have those guys in baseball and you'd look, you'd look up at the end of the day and they pitched like 40 games, made 13 starts and pitched 110 innings. Um, and and to, to kind of serve that role this year as he gets back into the swing of things, uh, you know, not to use the word swing too many times, uh, I, I think it's a good thing.
3: Yeah. And I I think LaRusse is already comparing him to uh, what Adam Wainwright did for him. Like the last time he managed. Mm. So, you know, like that's, of course that's like what he goes back to right away is St. Louis stuff. (laughs) But so that was kind of interesting. I thought. Kevin uh, with the minor league season
1: coming up, this is what I've been looking forward to as the weeks are are coming to an end here.
2: Yeah. All of us.
1: We lost it in 2020 and the alternate site, you know, had a a limited uh, stay in 2021. With the draft shrunk to five rounds last year, how would you evaluate the state of, of minor league baseball and college baseball, those who are trying to make a career in professional baseball at this point? We're seeing an increase in independent teams and clubs and minor MLB affiliates. They're calling them now partners, I should say, <laughs> in, in, the, in the independent scene. So uh, do you have a, do you have a grasp on the state of minor league and independent baseball at this point?
2: I mean, I think we're going to see more independently. We already have more independent league teams. You know, you have all these, these quote unquote partner leagues that were used to be minor league teams, but you know, you're right. I mean, we, we chopped 35 rounds off the draft last year. We've chopped 20 rounds off the draft this year. That's 55 rounds guys. That's, that's, that's more than 1600 players who are not going to get drafted. And of those 1600, you know, you, you don't have the same sign percentage of those later rounds, but you're talking about 1200 guys who, who would be playing under professional contract who are not. And, and every team, we all know the stories. Every team has their success stories, um, you know, after the 20th round. And we don't have a, an after the 20th round this year. And, and I think once we have a new CBA, you know, I think it's going to finalize somewhere between 20 and 30. So, you know, we're, we're losing the end of the draft no matter what. And teams aren't going to draft as many players. And they don't have as many minor league affiliates to send those players at. You know, I think minor league baseball as, as a business is... Uh, in massive trouble just be, and, and all of that is pandemic based this these these are teams that are uh not making huge profits they need gates to make money and they had a whole season without gates and and um, there are a lot of teams that have you know giant margin calls coming up here as far as the money that they needed and they they need gates and they need a season they need to get things going again in order to you know, flat out to survive but I think the new agreement will you know probably give them some a bit of financial infusion as well now that MLB has a vested interest in them and that will help but uh, overall you know, beyond like the, 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 the health of the minds the business, it's kind of the health of baseball in, in, a, in a way where, you know, what we saw with, with major league baseball kind of yeah. absorbing minor league baseball and, and really what can only be described as a hostile takeover um, is, I think it's bad for the game overall in the sense that the number of towns that lost minor league baseball. Um, and, and I think minor league baseball is such a you know, kind of a gateway drug to Major League Baseball for so many people because it's the games you can go to. It's the games that are uh, yeah, close. It's the games that are affordable. You can, you know, take a family there for 20 bucks usually. And and so to lose some of that, I think is, is far more damaging than, than some of the other things we've seen.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, if you wanted to tell me that you don't need 40 rounds in a draft, like I could go with you. I don't know. Yeah, if, you don't. We don't, yeah,
0: teams, like- teams
2: don't need that many players. Teams don't need that many affiliates to develop them. And that, but, but it was just such a short-sighted thing. Uh, without, without thinking about how it affected, you know, baseball as, as a cultural institution, which is, I think is something that major league baseball doesn't focus on enough.
3: Yeah. And who knows if 20 is the right number, but uh, like looking at the white Sox specifically, like how much is it going to hurt guys? Like the Sox have a ton of guys that are probably going to have to like, maybe go to Winston and high a, and they're probably not ready for Winston, but you know, you don't have great falls anymore. So like, what do you do with a guy who, you know, goes to rookie ball and, is really good. Right. And then you have to send them right to low A, and maybe they struggle and there's not like that buffer to send them back to you kind of have to just like let them sink or swim in a ball or you send them back to rookie ball, which they've already, you know, like accomplished
2: there. So I guess that's like
3: one of the things I'm curious to see.
2: I mean, I, there's, there's two thoughts there. One is that, you know, is first of all, every other team has the exact same situation, right? Right. So all these teams are forcing players up the ladder and so if that if everybody's forced up the ladder then maybe the level of competition has changed itself you know what i mean and so you know and so the way we think about high a ball maybe isn't how we should think about high a ball in the future and and maybe you know what feels like an inappropriate assignment suddenly becomes an appropriate assignment because everyone's sending players that aren't ready there so if everyone's sending players that aren't ready there the level of competition is dropped um and there's always going to be you know i think you're going to see teams Basically, turn their complexes into uh, all year operations, if you will. Um, and so, there will always be, you know, players and instructions and uh, instructional league type of games happening, you know, six seven months a year at various teams' complexes to keep things busy and to keep players moving and to keep players developing. And so, there will be an opportunity to play. But I do think, you know, if if everyone's getting forced up, then in a weird way, nobody's getting forced up. If that makes sense
3: do you know if baseball will let teams have two complex league teams officially or, or no uh,
2: TBD okay. um, th- there is, they are starting, they're talking about some limitations in the Dominican league where some teams have uh, as many as two and a half teams. Um, and there has been some talk about some limitations there. Uh, they're still working out the whole complex team. Teams want to be able to have unlimited complex rosters. Uh, but as far as like teams and official games, That's still to be determined.
1: We talked to Ben Badler Mm -hmm. uh, over at Baseball America, and he he was talking about the value of the White Sox in the international scene. And I think the way uh, you you look at their roster, the way that they're putting this together, they're really taking advantage of that resource in, in terms of the top international prospects. What is your opinion of the way the White Sox have attached that certain niche of the market and how it's translated to this point in their organization?
2: You know, it's been interesting. They've been they've been big game hunters down there, if that makes sense. Um, you know, when you think about you know not only Jose Abreu, if you I can if you want me to tell you a story of the sitting next to Kenny Williams, the Jose Abreu workout, I'm happy to do it. Um, but you know, we think about like they you know they they spend big money on gun guys like Adolfo. They you know obviously you know Luis Roberts, the talk of the town. They signed him. You know Cespedes was a big name. They signed him. Uh, Norge Vera was one of the bigger arms from Cuba. They signed him. They tend to go down there and, and really big game hunt. And I think it served them well. So what, what
1: is this Jose Abreu story? I'm curious. Uh,
2: so, um, <laughs> so, uh, the first time I went down to Dominican, I, I probably went down there 20 something times in my career, but the first time I went down to the Dominican was to go to the Jose Abreu workout. Um, you know, he just got on the Island. He was going to have a, a public workout for teams at the Yankees complex in the Dominican, Uh, And, and, and players like to have players like Abreu, these, these, you know, kind of a lot of the the defector Cubans like to have public workouts at the Yankees complex. There's a certain field where the wind blows out. And so the power can look crazy. And so uh, this is a massive event. Everyone knows Jose Abreu, everyone, he's an established superstar in Cuba and on the Cuban national team. Everyone knows this guy's a big leaguer. Uh, People want to see what he looks like and and just how good he is before they start bidding. And so uh, he has the workout at uh, at Yankee Stadium. He begins it and, and does some running. He takes some some ground balls at first base, some ground balls at third base, believe it or not. And then he starts hitting, starts taking batting practice. I am behind home plate, very crowded, tons of scouts, tons of executives there. Uh, and I'm sitting next to Kenny Williams. And uh, I'm going to try to paint a picture for you here, so bear with me. Beyond the center field fence at this field in Yankee Stadium, or at Yankees Complex, of the Dominican, is a, an outbuilding, like a shed. And on top of that shed is a corrugated metal fence. And Jose Abreu starts hitting and he starts hitting missiles, just bomb after bomb after bomb all to center field. And they're all hitting this roof. And so everyone's just sitting there and all you're getting is whack, bang, as it hits the roof. It just whack, bang. And the whole time, can he, like every time the ball would hit this corrugated metal roof and go bang next to me, Kenny Williams would go <laughs> with this little giggle. Oh and I just said to myself, so- yeah. and, and, you know, we got back, submitted reports. We bid very high on him. I think we've been, I think the Astros finished third or fourth in that bidding and the Rockies and the Giants were also involved. Um, and I was asked, who else do you think's in it? And I said, oh, the White Sox for sure. And I was right, and they yeah. got him. And obviously, he's been he's been phenomenal. But the, yeah. that was my first trip down there. It was the the Jose Abreu workout?
1: Very cool. Just a little little tell, right?
2: <laughs> just a little bit, just a little bit. Quick, Kenny liked him.
3: Well, there was the Mike. There was the I think Marco Patti, and he doesn't talk often, but he mentioned that was like when he first joined the organization, I think. And they had gone to see him, and he was with Kenny, and Kenny did something where you know, he left after 10 minutes. So people yeah. wouldn't, so people wouldn't think that the White Sox were onto him or whatever. And, yeah, and he uh, Marco, next to him, yeah. yeah. And Marco Patty kind of <laughs> Marco Patty kind of said like, Oh my God, I was worried. Like they don't like the guy. And Kenny mimicked like, Oh, this is a long swing. Like they're going to think we're not interested. We're leaving like right now. And Marco Patty telling it was kind of funny.
2: Yeah. We, we knew we were onto it. Um, and then, yeah, they ultimately got him. And then obviously he's been, he's been remarkable.
3: Had you uh, ever been down there? Like prior to working for the Astros,
2: no. The first time I went down there was working for the Astros. Like I said, I would go down um, depending on what we were seeing, what was going on, uh, two to five times a year.
3: Yeah. So just in like your, you know, your writing and podcasting is that how how different is like that whole marketplace like compared to what you anticipated, you know, before you got into a major league organization?
2: One hundred percent different. Yeah. Um, the the first time you go down there, um, is is one of the more eye-opening baseball experiences you'll ever have. Um, I know people who don't like to go down there. I think those people are idiots. Um, I love it down there. I think it's fantastic. Uh, I can't wait to one day go again. Uh, I, I love the country. I love the vibe. I love watching baseball down there. But um, yeah, you have to kind of go down there to to appreciate it. And I'll be honest with you guys, if, if I ever you know ran a baseball team, which would be a horrible decision by the owner, um, I would require every every single person in baseball operation at some point to make a trip down there to help to, to better understand what it's like down there um where these players are coming from uh what it, what it what a day-to-day at the complex looks like um i think all those things you need um to see to understand uh, and it, it, it's it's a very important experience
1: yeah i'm glad you mentioned that that's it's great perspective because I remember Chris Getz took a group of White Sox youngsters down to the Dominican and, and yeah. worked with. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, again, another ex- example of eye opening experiences. You know?
2: Yeah, that's really important. I can tell, I'll tell you another Sox related Latin American story if I can. Um, my first big league showcase down there was in San Cristobal. And the big star of that showcase was Eloy Jimenez. Um, and Eloy, like, got some sort of award in between games from the mayor of the town, who was Raul Mondesi at the time, uh, who came out in a silver tracksuit that I'll never forget. And But in, in batting practice, the only player who hit more home runs than Eloy in batting practice was Adolfo. Huh. But, uh, That's yeah, interesting. It's a, it was a fun time. I, it, I, it's, it's a great time to go down there. There's so many players that yeah. come up, you're like, and you're like, I think I saw that. I mean, I'm old now. And I can watch, like, I think I saw that dude when he was 14. <laughs> and, you know, and, I, and i find some notebook i go yep there it is yep.
1: so you mentioned adolfo what's your perspective on him currently in his career
2: i i do worry that he is a a bit of you know to to use the term i use a lot power goof where uh, i just worry the fact i just think there's so much swing and miss in that game that i i don't know if it's going to be enough to if the power is going to be enough to overcome it he's he's got massive power but i he's such a strikeout machine i don't know if there's any sort of uh, significant big league future for him.
3: Do you remember the first time maybe that you saw Luis Robert? Was it the showcase? Did you guys have money that year in Houston?
2: Uh, the first time I saw him was at the Houston Astros complex. We had a private workout with him. Okay. So I, I got to see him up front and, and or up close and, and talk to him and, and get right on him. And he had a private workout for, for us at our place. And I um, I remember writing in the report that this is probably the most Extreme package of tools I've ever seen. There's some there's some holes in him as a baseball player, uh, but in terms of pure tools, it's the best I've ever seen.
3: And then was there anything obviously like, you know, the taboo topic for us to talk about is Fernando Tatis Jr. Obviously, like here on the podcast. <laughs> sure, but sure. was that like? I mean, it just kind of seems like it came out of nowhere. Like he was, he was traded. And then I think he was on Keith laws, like top 100, like six weeks later. And he was kind of like, you know, like people said, like, this could be a real, and then all of a sudden he just like blew up. And now he's Fernando Tatis Jr. Like, does that, should that happen? Like, shouldn't like, cause you know, we were always kind of told like, oh, the white Sox never saw him. He never played games, but like, they kind of should have probably known. Right.
2: Um, I don't think that's fair to be honest with you. Okay. Um, I, 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 it's, it's it was a lot to give up for James Shields and, and for not to have, looked like a really interesting prospect, but you know, at the time of the trade, I don't think anyone was saying you're trading away an MVP here. Like, I don't think anyone was saying that. I think it's fun to say in retrospect. And if they're saying it in retrospect, they're, they're kind of being a little dishonest. It's like, I man, that's a lot to give up. That's a really good prospect, uh, but players, you know, players change. Uh, often in, in incredibly unexpected ways, and, and obviously Tatis has exceeded all expectations, and and yeah, it's 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 a tough pill to swallow, um, but but you know every GM somewhere has their has their Tatis trade, has their the the the, the one that, that that you know looking back is a mistake. And, and it happens to everyone. There's no perfect GM. They all make mistakes. Trades are risky. Um, and sometimes you got to take care of the now and not worry about the future. And sometimes you got to not worry about the future or the now and take care of the future. And, and that can lead to some of these kind of mismatches. I I, I don't think... You can sit there and go, oh, the White Sox are the dumbest thing in the world. It, it happened. It was a mistake. Um, it turned into a massive one because of the way Tatis changed. And there's no guarantee he would have turned into that player with the White Sox. You know, it's it, it's such a difficult thing to try to, to to predict. And he was just so young and so toolsy when they traded him, uh, but but he got significantly better in, in ways that are unexpected.
1: White Sox have Elijah, so I'm sure it'll all work out just fine. Kevin, <laughs> you've, been, you've been outstanding. Thank you so much. Uh, generous with your time. Really appreciate it. and Taking the time to jump on with us at the Future Sox podcast. Last one before we let you go. You talked about some of the experiences. Really enjoyed your stories about Jose Abreu, Eloy Jimenez, Mick Adolfo. Is there any stateside prospect that you were scouting that the White Sox ended up taking in the draft that really uh, caught your attention and was really <laughs> high on?
2: <laughs> I'm going to tell you the opposite. I'm going to tell you, you know, I did okay. this. When you, when you, when you spend years in player evaluation, you tend to focus on your misses um, and you go, oh, whatever, I got that guy right. You tend to focus on your misses. So I spent a lot, you know, as a special assistant, I was all over the place. I did a lot of pro evaluation, did a lot of international evaluation and, and from March until June was very draft focused at times and, and would spend time you know, going to, to various Midwest places and looking at some Midwest players and helping. Cause I, I do live here in the Chicago area. Um, and, uh, had to you know turn in an evaluation on Jonathan Stever, uh, who had very good numbers, uh, was, was pitching very well at Indiana. I believe he led the conference and strikeouts that year. And I, and I didn't like him. I, I just, I, it was, I thought I didn't, and it was because I couldn't really wrap around, wrap my head around his slider. Um, and I wish I kind of knew now what I knew then. He has a very weird slider. It, it's obviously a very effective pitch, but it's also a very low spin rate pitch. And at the same time, I think some of the ways we look at pitches in, in a hardcore data wise, we talk about um, even things in the public sphere, things like horizontal and vertical movement and how we grade those kind of things. I think the the concept of simply the way we look at certain pitches we don't appreciate necessarily how they always perform at times. And we just kind of focus on, on the movement and I, there are, there are aspects beyond these, these track man Hawkeye kind of measurements that we don't appreciate enough. And I think Steve checked a lot of boxes for those things that I didn't appreciate at the time. And so I was like, I, I'm kind of out on this guy. I don't really see it. I don't, I don't think we should, you know, take him at the level he's going to get taken, which is somewhere in the fourth to sixth round. Uh, and obviously the, the White Sox did, and he's, he's been really good. Uh, he has gained a little bit of velocity since his time in Indiana. And, you know, that, that kind of, you know, it, it's kind of a slider, kind of a curve. I think he calls it a curve. It's a spike grip, but it, it acts like a slider at times is a much better pitch than I gave him credit for. And and it's just one of those things I look at, and, man, this guy's actually kind of pretty good. You know, there's still some, some refinement to go in terms of command and control and, and pitch efficiency and things like that. But the raw stuff is, is way better than, than I gave it credit for at the time.
3: Yeah. And I don't think he's ready for the big leagues yet, but I think they are going to send him to Charlotte, which I, you know, I think is going to be, Kind of interesting. So thanks for doing this. One last one that I have for you. You know, the White Sox have a really good team, potential World Series contender coming out of the American League. You were in a front office at the time. So your thoughts, I guess, or just like the industry in general, how, how the White Sox did, you know, about their moves, like building this team in a, in a fairly traditional rebuild, I think, but they had a lot to trade to accelerate that process at the beginning, I think.
2: I, I, don't, I honestly don't think there's any way to put it other than they've crushed it. I think their front office is very underrated. I think the times they get seen as kind of like old school and backwards, and that's actually not the case. Um, I think Rick Hahn is exceptionally good at his job. I think, you know, a guy like Jeremy is, is you know, a, a guy no one talks about. was an incredible kind of, kind of second in, in, in charge there. But you look at what they've built, you know, you, I always talk about offensively avoiding dead innings. It's the hardest thing to do. But, you know, you've, you, you certainly remember White Sox teams in this situation. I remember plenty of, plenty of Astros teams and other in the situation where um, your team's in the field and the inning's over and, and TV graphic comes up and here's who's, here's who's coming up and it's somewhere in the bottom of the order. And you go, oh, it's a great time to, to change the laundry out because it's a dead inning. It's three guys who can't hit. And, and if they have such depth in their lineup right now, you know, one through nine is dangerous. Um, and, and that's, that's the one thing you can, that, that's really hard to achieve and, and to be able to get there, they're there. And then, you know, their, their, their rotation-wise is now, I, I know, you know, Keuchel's been struggling at, at times and, 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 you know, Dylan Cease is, is kind of up and down, but um, all five stars at least should give you some confidence that, you know, we could win this game. That's hard to achieve as well. You know, there's plenty of teams that have three starters, they feel that way. And so to have that much of a lineup, that much of a rotation, um, you know, the back end of the bullpen is is really good. Uh, there's a lot to like there. And I, and I, think, I think they've done a... A phenomenal job, to be honest with you.
1: Well, we like hearing that. Really appreciate <laughs> you, uh, you know, pandering to our audience a little bit. No, but I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kevin. This was great. Really, really do appreciate your time today.
2: No, I appreciate it. And tell, tell your, tell your, uh, your five percent of your listeners that I do not hate Nick Madrigal.
1: <laughs> can do, Kevin Goldstein of Fangraphs. You can find him on Twitter at Kevin underscore Goldstein. Check us out on futuresox.com. You'll see all of our. Stuff and explore our podcast as well on Acre.fm forward slash Futureshocks for Kevin Goldstein and James Fox. My name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. We'll talk to you all next time.